Welcome back. This episode includes some pretty bad language. It also gets into some hard stuff. So please take care while listening. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Previously on 544 Days. So I thought to myself, oh my God, maybe Jason is underneath and they're torturing him and they want me to see that. The Islamic revolutionary guard in Iran is both revered and feared. Anyone with the gun is obviously more powerful than the one with no gun. So as long as someone holds a gun on your head, that makes you in comparison powerless. I guess it's natural that people want to know if I was tortured in a Veen prison. And it doesn't have a simple answer. There have been plenty of well-documented cases of physical violence used on prisoners in Iran, including political prisoners. Some have even died in the process. In my case, I wasn't physically abused. Like I said in the last episode, my captors love to remind me that here is not Guantanamo as if they were trying to convince me that they would never sink to the level of the U.S. in the way they treat their prisoners. Actually, they called us their guests. It took me a while to realize that I was being tortured, just not in a way that left bruises. I was deprived of sleep and food and medical attention, and I was told that my family thought I was dead and that if I didn't confess, I'd be executed. That's all torture. Just being held in solitary confinement can cause long-term psychological damage. That's why the UN considers solitary confinement for anything over 15 days to be torture. During my time in solitary, I lost a lot of weight. 40 pounds in 40 days. I also got weird headaches, eye infections, pain in my balls. I suffered from hallucinations, certain that the walls and floor of my cell were moving. I was not in a healthy place. If you want even more details about this, I wrote a whole memoir about it. It's called Prisoner. Yes, that's a plug. You should buy the book. But for now, I'm going to take this podcast into new territory. Because my story is just one part of this. I'm just going to set my phone to do not disturb. Mom, have you turned off... uh... Oh, I didn't think about that. That's my mom, Mary Rezaian. And she's got a story, too. I had a phone call from your brother. And my first thought was, okay, what would Dad do? I'm Jason Rezaian, and this is 544 Days. Episode 3, The Resigns Confront a Challenge Few American Families Ever Face. How to Free Their Loved Ones from a Prison Halfway Around the World. 
Hey, real quick question, Jason. Can you before we get started? Can you um can you just run down who else you're talking to and who you plan to include in this before we get going? That's Ollie, my brother. If you plan on like cutting it up and whatever, right? You know, you might want to have somebody talk about what a great guy Jason is. Well, that's why we brought you on. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I might not be. Uh, I might not be objective enough. <laughs> <laughs> Like any big brother, Ollie's been giving me shit since we were kids. But when I was detained in Iran, he made up for it. I mean, listen to some of the things that people say about him. I want a big brother like Ollie. He just was relentless. Wonderfully relentless. Relentlessly focused. Relentless. You get the point. Most people who are taken hostage somewhere in the world don't have advocates like my brother. His relentlessness is one of the main reasons I'm not still inside Avin prison right now. Ali is a biotech consultant. He didn't know people in politics, and to him, D.C. is truly a swamp. He traveled for work, but unlike me, he was pretty happy staying at home in California. And when Yegi and I got married, he was not enthusiastic about coming to Iran. I offered to have the wedding somewhere else. That's true, you did. Yes, I did. He offered... Rome. The one in Rome, well, it's not the same hotel. It was an intercontinental with a garden up on top with a bar. The charcuterie there is amazing. This charcuterie, like as big as the table I'm sitting at right now, and with a view down over the Spanish steps. Yeah. That's Ollie. At the time of my arrest, he was taking a day off at home in Marin County. And I started getting these telephone calls from an unlisted number. And I just kind of ignored him because everybody who I was working with knew that I wasn't working. So I was like, this is just junk. But then I received a text from Doug Jell over at the Washington Post. He introduced himself, said that he was your boss and that he wanted to talk to me. So uh, then I called him back and I think he gave me some information that you guys had been taken. We talked about it and kind of said, okay, hopefully this isn't going to be something that's going to take that long. And and like I say, we said, you know, we don't know much, so we're going to get back together again in a couple hours. Doug Jell was my editor at the Post. He had gotten a call earlier that day from another journalist in Iran who'd heard that Yegi and I had been arrested. Doug told Ali not to panic. Yeah, I mean, I think for the first fair bit, we were like, all right, you know, Jason's been brought in to talk before. We didn't know the extent of what had happened at your house. And so I I think it was kind of like, you know, this is what he signed up for. They're going to take him in, they're going to ask him some questions, and they're going to kick him tomorrow or the next day. And I think the really the thing that made it less concerning to me, especially at first, was just that I kind of knew what you covered, and you and I have talked about it a whole bunch of times, and I knew that you weren't, like, you know, digging around into anything you shouldn't have been, right? You were following the rules. Even though at first he thought everything would be fine, as soon as he learned about my arrest, my brother knew he needed to call my mom. When I first heard, I was certainly concerned. And I fell back on the what turned out to be the false assurance that if anything happened to you, there would be people there who would be able to arrange things to get you out. You know, you talk about your worry gene, and I would argue that in your later years, um, some of that's gone out the window. Uh, (laughs) You You mean you think I'm reckless? (laughs) You said it, not me. Um, 
If my mom seems pretty easygoing about the idea of her youngest son getting picked up by the security apparatus of a hostile government and thrown in prison, well, that's my mom. It takes a little bit more than that to get Mary Rezaian riled up. She's an explorer at heart. She's been pushing herself out of her comfort zones her entire adult life. I was always interested in foreign things and drawn toward foreign people and drawn toward your dad. My mom grew up in a little town called Warrenville, Illinois. It's right next door to Wheaton, home of Evangelical Wheaton College, where Billy Graham got his start. It's only 30 miles from Chicago, but it felt like a million miles away from the kind of life she dreamed of. I always felt like an odd fish. All my life, I was always the shortest kid. I had to wear glasses from the time I was six. My parents were divorced in the 40s. I mean, there were... You were into foreign Muslim dudes? No, not... (laughs) (laughs) No. No, actually, I was not into foreign Muslim dudes until I met your dad. (laughs) My dad, Taggy, grew up in Mashhad, Iran's holiest city. It's always been a conservative place. Things like dancing and hanging out with members of the opposite sex were frowned upon. But Dad wasn't wired like that. He dreamed of going to America. It was something a growing number of young Iranians were starting to do at the time. The U.S. had helped to engineer a coup in Iran in 1953. And they consolidated power in Iran under their preferred leader, Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. So the governments of the U.S. and Iran were cozy. Dad's dad, my grandfather, was a wealthy and influential figure. He supported my dad's dreams. So in 1959, dad left Iran to study at Georgetown University here in Washington, D.C. Sometimes I think about what that must have been like, going from a strict Islamic society to the capital of the United States. It must have been mind-boggling. After only a few weeks here, Dad decided he wanted to go home. America was just too different. My grandfather, though, wasn't having it. He'd spent too much money and social capital to send my dad to America. My grandfather arranged for him to go to a different school, one that some other students from Mashhad were already attending. So that's how my dad became probably the only person in history to transfer from Georgetown to Napa Junior College. After finishing a two-year course there, he enrolled at San Francisco State. And that's where he met my mother. She had escaped to California from the Midwest. So I was going to summer school, and so was your dad. And we met in the library. I always thought of myself as someone who, in all probability, would not marry, definitely would not have children, definitely would not be a homemaker, and would have find a career overseas. So when I met your dad, my life took a really different turn. She'd never met anyone like him before. He was fun, charismatic, and driven. The fact that his English wasn't great probably made him even more attractive. Taggy and Mary were getting serious, but her mom in Illinois was not on board. Not at least until she could meet these Resigns from Mashhad. That was her condition. So in the spring of 1967, they did something that sounds pretty incredible now, but was actually easy for Americans back then. They hopped on a plane for Iran. 
So we visited historic sites and we spent five days with Tagus family in Nashad. And I fell in love with the country as I had fallen in love with the man. Um, we married, we had children, we had a house, we had a house full of Iranian relatives. And um, that's how you guys grew up. My brother came along in 1970. I was born in 1976, the bicentennial and the year of the dragon. Dad opened a Persian rug shop north of San Francisco, and his business thrived. A couple of times a year, he'd go back to Iran on buying trips. He bought a big house in Marin County, and he always drove a fancy car, usually a German one. He was living the American dream. Then something happened that would change our lives forever. Some 60 Americans are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. In 1979, I was only three, so I don't actually remember this. But you probably know something about it. Iran had gone through a cataclysmic revolution. The Shah was exiled in January of that year, and the Islamic Republic was born soon afterwards. The country went suddenly from a monarchy to a theocracy. And then in November, Iranian militants took dozens of American diplomats hostage at the U.S. Embassy. What I do remember from around that time was the way that my dad's relatives would shout at the TV, angry at how the Iranian people were being portrayed. Good evening. It's been 13 days since Iranian students stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran and took 62 hostages. Jim, the militant students holding the hostages hardened their terms today. They rejected the idea of having the Shah leave the United States for any country other than Iran. The situation was potentially explosive as Iranian marchers were met by angry, jeering crowds of people who shouted, Iranians go home and USA all the way. Iran went from being a place most Americans had only vague ideas about to being our number one enemy almost overnight. Suddenly, no one was interested in buying Persian rugs or anything else from Iran. My dad said he went from doing $400,000 in sales the month before the hostages were taken to zero for the next six months. No customers. Someone even shot bullets through the massive window in the front of the store. My dad never replaced it as a reminder of the bitterness of that period. When people used to ask him where he was from, he'd say he was Iranian by birth and American by choice. But at the time, a lot of people didn't think he could be both. Some people still don't. When the hostages were finally released, all 52 of them, Businesses all over the country scrambled to send them welcome home presents. The hostages must have the greatest array of gifts and surprises since Queen for a Day. Already in Wiesbaden, sent there by plane, they've got 52 lovely live lobsters from Maine. That's Charles Osgood on CBS News in January 1981. He used to do this rhyming news shtick every week. A West Coast rug dealer born in Iran wants to prove where he stands in the best way he can. A thousand bucks off on a rug, small or large. I will send 52 gift certificate and they can call me or write to me. I'll send it free of charge. That's my dad, Taggy Rezaian. Although on the screen they misspelled it. Tashi. When he shipped the rugs to the returned hostages, he included a certificate in the package. It said, on behalf of Iranians, I apologize for what you've endured. 
and as an American, I welcome you home. I still have the thank you notes we got from dozens of the hostages who received those rugs. In April 2011, my dad died. He was 71 years old. Along with a couple of cousins, Ali and I did the ritual washing of his body, a sacred act in Islam. Dad had done it for several of his relatives in California, and he would have done it for us. If I told you it was the most important thing I'll ever do, I wouldn't be exaggerating. It brought me closure and peace that I'm not sure I could have gotten any other way. We buried him in a cemetery that's the final resting place for much of Marin County's original Iranian community. He's next to his sister and near other resigns. His health had been declining since a car accident a couple of years earlier, but I knew it was something else that finally broke him. Just four weeks before, Ollie's son Walker died suddenly. He'd gotten the H1N1 flu. Walker was only five years old. I don't think I need to explain how devastating the loss of a child is. Maybe it's impossible to put into words. I'm only telling you because you should be aware of what came before my ordeal. Walker, and then Dad. Our family dynamics were completely upended just three years before I was thrown in prison. After Dad's death, my mom had a big decision to make. She didn't want to stay in Marin. A lifetime of memories were now shrouded in sadness. So at age 69, her wanderlust still intact, she decided to come live with me in Tehran. Having the opportunity to, to move away from California gave me, I suppose you could say, a new lease on life. I was, I was moving out into the world as a single person rather than as a member of a couple because we'd had, what, 45 years together? Mm -hmm. And um, that was a real gift to me. My mom moved to Tehran, and we became roommates. It actually wasn't that bad. We had some fun. We lived together for a year and a half until Yegi and I got engaged. Mom decided it was time to move again. I was very clear that I did not want to move back to California, or the, the United States for that matter. Because I was living the dream. You know, my dream had always been to live overseas. Her next move was Istanbul, a city she'd always been curious about, but had spent hardly any time in. So that's where mom was in July of 2014 when she got the call from my brother that Yegi and I had been detained. It was Thursday morning, the 24th. I was awake at 7.30 in my apartment in Istanbul. I had a phone call from the brother. And my first thought was, okay, what would dad do? What would your dad do? Coming up, my mom gives Iran's supreme leader a good talking to. It's how a mom would talk to her kid. And yet, it was an angry mom coming across, telling the supreme leader, let my son go. first thing my mom and brother did after hearing about our arrest was start working the phones. They started calling my friends and colleagues in Iran, 
Ali tried contacting people in government and influential Iranian expats. Anyone who he thought might be able to get me out. Mom followed his lead. Well, I stayed in close contact with Ali. And he pulled together a task force of several people. Um, They were journalists. They were Iranian activists. Some people who had themselves spent time in the same prison. Hello, this is Ali. Is anybody there? Yeah, I'm here. Ali would sit at his kitchen table, where he held his conference calls with the task force. wanted to catch up, first of all, on just some background, what's going on, kind of current state, based on what we know from Iran, and then um, work through that, and uh, then try and come up with some, brainstorm some ideas. A friend of mine videotaped some of those meetings. That's That's been pretty standard procedure with just about everybody they've In the early days, we still hoped that it would be possible to go through back channels and have you released. Really what you're talking about is... Uh, I'm talking about party bazi. Yeah, you know, nepotism and, you know... Uh, mm-hmm. Who do you know? Who do you know? Who, who, who do, do you know? know? Who yeah. does your best friend know who works at a Vin prison? Right. Or, um, you know, has a... Uh, has an in with a certain ministry, right. you know, immediately when there's any kind of a issue or crisis, Persians go to that mode. And so they try to work, I don't know if you'd call that work the system, but to work things out. I think that's exactly out. what you'd call it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you but, try and, yeah. you know, you, you understand that Right. There's always another. There's uh, always another way for for Persians, Iranians. There is always another way around. You know, I mean, Dad used to say, uh, "Always remember the the golden rule. I got the gold. I make the rules." <laughs> <laughs> Although my mom thought I'd get out soon, the thing that made her really worry was my health. I immediately started sounding the alarm about your blood pressure, which I knew was going to be sky high. And my expectation was that when they arrested you, they didn't bother to pick up your pills from the house. It's true. I've been on blood pressure meds since high school. And when we got arrested, they didn't bring my pills. At first, my captors wouldn't let me see a doctor to check my blood pressure or get the medication I needed. I did the best I could to stay calm, knowing that getting too worked up might kill me. So I started making a lot of noise. My fear was that you might have a heart attack or stroke because of the stress. For the first few days, news reports about my arrest were pretty low-key. My family hadn't issued a statement yet, and the experts they were talking to thought that it should stay that way. In the initial days and even into the weeks, I think there was this concern that if we started putting pressure, it would make the situation worse for you and Yegi. I don't want to say it felt like we were flying blind, but we really didn't know how you both would be treated. You can say that you were flying blind because you guys were flying blind. Uh, I mean, (laughs) there's not a handbook for this kind of stuff. The question of when or if the family of a hostage should go public is incredibly contentious. You're getting advice from all directions. Government officials, 
self-proclaimed experts, journalists, and this idea that coming out and demanding the release of family members could somehow make things more dangerous, that's a widespread and deeply rooted belief. The thinking goes, if the people holding your loved one know that anyone cares, the price will go up. But as the days dragged on, it started to become clear that Iran wasn't just gonna quietly let us go. My family had to decide. What was the message they wanted to send to Iran? And what tone should they use? Polite? Demanding? Or some combination? And so in an effort, I think, to finally come out with the messages that we wanted out in the media, they asked me to do a video. They, in this case, are the Iranian experts and expats, the task force. So less than a week after my arrest, my 71-year-old mom sat down in front of a camera in her apartment in Istanbul. Salam. Edi Hamigi Mubarak. She's speaking in Persian, wishing them a happy end of Ramadan. My mom's wearing a white headscarf and green dress. Her audience is the government of Iran, so she wants to look respectful. She says, I'm Jason Rezaian's mother. On the night of Tuesday, July 22nd, my son Jason Rezaian and his wife Yegane Salahi were both arrested in Iran. It has been more than seven days and they are still being held without charge. I do not know where my son and daughter-in-law are. As a mother, I am extremely worried for their well-being. Jason uses medication for high blood pressure. Without it, his health is dangerously compromised. I love my son and daughter, and I am proud of their commitment to journalism. I know their standards for truth and excellence in journalism guide them both professionally and personally. I humbly ask those who continue to detain my son and daughter to please release them and allow our family to be reunited and my fears for their safety to subside. What was it like for you to deliver those lines? And you did some of them in Persian. Uh, You know, you made an appeal to the Supreme Leader. (laughs) Um, So you talk about what Pasarmenra of Azkon, which is how... Uh, Azadkon. Azad. Azadkon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's how a, a, um, how a mom would talk to her kid, right. rather, right. <laughs> and, and after the fact, that was pointed out to me, and yet it was um, an angry mom coming across, telling the supreme leader, let my son go, you know? <laughs> So, I mean, what did it feel like, though, to sit down and, you know, you hadn't done a lot of uh, reading of lines since high school musicals. Um, You know, what was was that experience like? (laughs) The experience of doing that felt strange. You know, I've always tended to be somewhat of a a private person. And um, yet... This was a matter of life and death, and so I had to reach in to find other rusty parts of myself to uh, to do my share. So, yeah, it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. On the night of September 10th, 2014, nearly two months after my arrest, I got some news. 
Kazem, my interrogator, told me I'd be leaving solitary confinement. I was taken out of my cell, blindfolded as always, and marched into a different part of the prison. I was getting a cellmate. His name was Mirsani. He was a businessman from Azerbaijan. He didn't speak any English, and he didn't speak any Persian. So I had no idea how we'd communicate. Eventually, we developed a kind of improvised language that featured a combination of English, Azeri, and Persian words, and plenty of grunts. And we started to get to know each other. No one explained why this was happening. Had they finally decided I wasn't a threat? Not too much later, a guard came to my cell. He brought me back to the big room I'd been taken to on my very first night in Naveen. And just like on that night, there was a guy there who everyone called the Great Judge. By this time, I'd been his guest for 52 days. He said to me, your value is very low right now, and that is a problem for me. It was the first time any of them acknowledged that I was being held as leverage. And if my value was low, that led me to believe that no one back home was doing much to get me out. He said, to raise your value, I must film you. At that moment, I realized that I was about to join the long list of Americans talking to a camera in hostage videos. I imagined my family watching my forced confession on YouTube, how it would torment my mother, make my brother irate. But I wasn't being given a choice. Then things got weird. Kazem and I went shopping. They said I'd lost so much weight that they wanted to get me some new clothes to wear for my hostage video. It was the strangest shopping experience of my life. They took me to an upscale part of town and made me pick out a shirt and pants in a popular menswear store. Then they took me to a florist and a pastry shop to buy gifts for Yegi, who was still in solitary. It made no sense. It was like they wanted me to act out the role of your average middle-class husband on his way home from work. Back at the prison, I got to see Yegi again, and we ate some of the pastries. They were so unbelievably sweet after two months of prison food, they made our stomachs churn. When they got me in front of the camera to make my forced confession, they had a script ready for me. They wanted me to apologize to the Iranian people, to say that I'd been undermining the Iranian government, to plead to President Obama to get me out. I zigged and I zagged. There were things I wasn't gonna say on camera. But in the end, I made the video. Cause like I said, I didn't really have a choice. All these years later, the Iranians have still never released the messages they forced me to record. 72 days after our arrest, Yegi was still in solitary. But that day, our interrogators brought her out of her cell and sat her down in front of a camera. And then they started asking me questions, like how we met. So I had to tell the whole story. Everything I have written so far, like 10 times, I had to say it again in front of the camera. It took like two hours. It was like a really tiring day. And after that, around like 6.37, they brought me back to my cell. When I came back to my cell, I saw my own clothes, the clothes that were walked in with from our home. The guard told her to put those clothes on. 
Then they brought her back in front of the camera and asked her a whole bunch of the same questions all over again. When the whole recording with my own clothes finished, um, the two guys, Siamak and Kazem, told me that, oh, you are being released tonight. I was like, what? I am going to be released? No, this is not what you promised me. What about Jason? They said, we can't talk about Jason. They made her sign a piece of paper promising to follow a long list of rules. No working as a journalist. No contacting government officials. No advocating on my behalf. If I follow all the rules and these conditions, and I never forget the sentence, if I behave myself and I am a good girl, um, I'm going to see you out very soon, within a couple of weeks. Yegi was getting out without me. But they were making it very clear that this wasn't freedom. They'd be watching her. And they kept her passport to make sure she couldn't leave the country. It was October 1st, nighttime, and there was a hitch. Our captors tried to call Yegi's parents to come pick her up, but nobody answered. They said, we're going to drive you and drop you somewhere. So then you find your way home. I was like, it's impossible. You can't do this to me. This is like a night, a cold fall night, and I came in with summer clothes. So I was like, you guys have to call my parents. You have to find my parents. I'm happy to sit here. I don't have to get released because Jason is not getting released. I stay. I was crying, like begging. I held the, the doorknob. The female guard came and she was like pulling me. And then I never forget because the two assholes told me, oh, you were the first person who is being released um, and doesn't want to go. Eventually they did track down Yegi's parents. But instead of allowing her to walk out the front door of the prison like a normal person would, they arranged a handoff under a highway overpass. Her interrogator, Siamak, rode in the car with her. And my parents came. They were standing there. I could see them. I couldn't see their car, but I could see them standing right there. My mom and my dad. And then my mom came and we hugged and we cried. And then my parents kept asking, what about our son-in-law? What about our son-in-law? And he said, hopefully soon, hopefully soon. You talk about some moments in your life as bittersweet. That moment, seeing myself free, was not a bittersweet moment. It was just a deeply bitter moment because that meant you're going to still be there and so many more uncertainties will come our way for a very long time. So now it was just me at Avin prison. My new cell was certainly more comfortable than solitary, but I wasn't sure if the move was a sign I'd get out soon or that I'd be settling in for a long stay. But there was one big improvement. My cell had a TV. Mirsani and I would watch it all the time. And even though it only got the channels of Iran's official state broadcaster, that TV became my lifeline to the outside world. It also became the only way I could get information about my case. One day in late September, I was watching a press conference with Iran's president at the time, Hassan Rouhani. He was at the United Nations in New York City. And then the camera panned to a familiar face from home, Marty Baron, 
who was the executive editor of the Washington Post. And he asked the question. Uh, first of all, I just want to take this opportunity to uh, revisit the subject of our correspondent, Jason Rezaian, and uh, his wife, Yagani. I would like to say to you uh, personally uh, that uh, we believe that he deserves his freedom, and we ask the government of Iran to, uh, to release him. And I want to ask you how the Iranian government can justify uh, imprisoning a good journalist. I think you know he's a good journalist and a good person and having him imprisoned for two months and interrogated for two months. How is that possible? Rouhani says he hopes I'm as comfortable as possible under the circumstances. It's not much of an answer, but that's not the point. The point is that Marty Baron, my boss's boss, confronted the president of Iran about my case on TV. For months, Kazem had been telling me that the Post didn't care about me, that they hadn't said a word in my defense, that they weren't doing anything to free me. Now, finally, I had proof that he'd been lying. Next time, inside the White House, where the Obama administration was hard at work on the Iran nuclear deal, and then my captivity went and fucked it all up. We tried to keep the two separate for a very fundamental reason. If we put them together, we would have given Iran more leverage. And I get to hear a welcome voice. While we were talking, I kept thinking, boy, this call is really, I mean, he's being allowed 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Yeah, it felt like a really long call. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like, it was like, wow, this is great. And what's going on here? Five hundred and forty-four days is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet, Crooked Media, and A24. It's hosted by me, Jason Rosian. Our senior producer is Matt Frassica. Julie Carley is our associate producer. Our editor is Allison McAdam, with fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Mixing and sound design by Emma Munger. Additional sound design by Josephine Holtzman of Future Projects. Our theme music is by Ramtin Arablouei. And we have more original music by Ramtin and Emma Munger. Additional music by Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, and Bobby Lord. Production support from Sydney Rapp, Gabby Mrazowski, and Renita Jablonski. Special thanks to Jeremy Hunt of NBC and Dina El Sayed of Getty Images, Susie Cummings, and Katie Doggart from NPR, and ABC News Video Source. The executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Jess Lubin, Lyra Smith, Allison Falsetta, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polk. Special thanks to Tommy Vitor, Ravi Nandan, Claire Sankey, Dan Behar, and Jen Hahn. <laughs>